I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey friends, welcome to the Renaissance English History Podcast. This is the weekly highlight reel of videos that I have put out on YouTube. So in case you don't know, you can go over to YouTube and watch all of my videos. The channel is History and Coffee, and you can just search for my name as well, Heather Tesco, History and Coffee, and you will get it. And you can subscribe there. Thank you to the many people who already subscribe. And then what I've started doing is weekly highlight reels of some of the videos that have gone out on YouTube that would be of interest to the podcast listeners as well. So thanks for listening. And you can also, like I said, go over and join me on YouTube, History and Coffee, and search for Heather. And there I am. So let's get right into it. Today, we are talking about the assassination attempts on Elizabeth I. Let's go back and just introduce Elizabeth I. She ascended to the throne in 1558. Her rule heralded a golden age of everything, the Elizabethan golden age of you name it but it was also shadowed by constant peril. Her Protestant reign in a divided religious landscape made her a target not just of political rivalry, but numerous assassination plots. These attempts on her life were not just threats to her person, but to the stability of an entire nation. So let's talk about John Somerville first. John Somerville was born in 1560 in Warwickshire. To a Warwickshire family, Somerville was not your typical conspirator. His public declaration to assassinate Queen Elizabeth I sent shockwaves through the realm. But who was he? Somerville was a landowner from Edston. His life took a dramatic turn when he openly expressed his intention to end the Queen's life. Not a good move. However, it's crucial to understand the context of Somerville's mental state. Many believe that he was of unsound mind, lacking both the genuine inclination and capacity to execute such a high-profile crime. Yet, the Elizabethan security apparatus, always bracing for the worst, took no chances. They arrested Somerville, plunging him into the grim depths of the Tower of London. There, he faced imprisonment and torture, and his life ended in tragedy. Allegedly, he ended his own life in the Tower. The repercussions of Somerville's audacious declaration rippled far beyond his own demise. His father-in-law, Edward Arden, who was a prominent figure, found himself ensnared in the aftermath. Arden was arrested, subjected to torture, and ultimately met his end on the scaffold, convicted of treason. This tragic saga highlights the era's harsh realities where a single outburst could spell doom not just for the individual, but for their entire family. Now let's talk about a new piece of news that was just unveiled about six months or so ago. Within the British Library, there was a groundbreaking revelation unveiling a startling twist in a tale of Elizabethan espionage. 
Hidden within the pages of William Camden's Annals, a primary source for Elizabethan history, lies a censored truth that alters our understanding of the era. Camden was known for his meticulous chronicling of Elizabeth's reign, seems to have harbored a sensational secret, the involvement of King James I in plots against Elizabeth. Of course, that would have been King James I of England, the sixth of Scotland. This bombshell was unearthed through the efforts of modern researchers, employing advanced imaging technology to peer beneath layers of paper pasted over the original text. These obscured passages, once illuminated, narrate a tale of political intrigue and betrayal at the very highest levels. The most striking of these findings is the confession of one Valentine Thomas, who claimed to have been dispatched by King James I, then King James VI of Scotland, to assassinate the English queen. The implications of Thomas's accusation are monumental. It suggests a clandestine war waged from the shadows by the future King of England against the reigning monarch. Yet Camden's record of these events is tinged with caution. His initial drafts, brimming with direct accusations, were tempered in the final version, softening the allegations to mere ill-affection towards Elizabeth by James. This editorial choice by Camden, possibly to avoid royal wrath or to maintain a facade of impartiality, paints a vivid picture of the precarious balance historians of the time had to maintain. Thus, this discovery not only sheds new light on the perils faced by Elizabeth I, but also on the intricate dance of power, perception, and historiography in Tudor England. The realm of historical fiction also often blurs the lines between fact and fantasy. People who watched the film Elizabeth will remember one of the most dramatic scenes involving an assassination attempt using a poisoned dress intended for the queen, but fatally worn by one of her ladies. This captivating plot, however, strays very far from the truth. There is no record of such an attempt on Elizabeth's life, and the characters involved are largely fictional creations. The truth, though less theatrical, reveals a queen under constant vigilance. From the onset of her reign in 1558, Elizabeth's advisors meticulously scrutinized everything that came into contact with her, especially clothing, for fear of poison, a common assassination tool of the period. This level of caution underscores the very real threats that overshadowed her reign and the protective measures deemed necessary to ensure her safety. Beyond the realm of myths and movies, Elizabeth I's life was targeted through more tangible plots. One such instance was the barge incident of 1579. While Elizabeth enjoyed a leisurely river cruise on the Thames, an assailant reportedly fired at her. The accounts vary. Some say it was a crossbow bolt, others a bullet. Was it a deliberate assassination attempt or a misfired salute? The stories diverge, with some claiming a helmsman was injured, while others recount a more tragic outcome. This incident remains shrouded in mystery, and its true nature and intent are obscured by the fog of time. Another notable plot involves William Perry, a figure whose loyalty was as ambiguous as his intentions. Perry was a member of Elizabeth's parliament, known for his fluctuating allegiances. His plot to assassinate the Queen in 1584 remains a contentious topic among historians. Was Perry genuinely plotting against Elizabeth, or was it a convoluted ruse to entrap real conspirators? 
His past as a spy and his enigmatic actions in court further cloud the narrative. Ultimately, Perry's fate was sealed on the executioner's block, but the true extent of his treachery, or lack thereof, continues to be a subject of debate. For those who are familiar with Henry VIII's Six Queens, Catherine Parr's story will be familiar to you, but let's just walk briefly through it once more. Catherine Parr came from the English nobility. Her journey saw her widowed twice before she was paired with the most powerful man in England. She was Henry's final consort. She was far more than a mere queen in name. She was the rare woman who stood as regent while Henry campaigned in France, a testament to the trust that the king placed in her. She was also a fervent Protestant. She wasn't just influential in the court's politics, but also in England's religious history. She championed education, and she was the first English queen to publish under her own name. Yet amidst the vast narratives of the court, wars, and faith, a personal chapter of Catherine's life often remains overshadowed, the tale of her daughter, Mary Seymour. So following Henry VIII's death, Catherine quickly rekindled a former romance with Thomas Seymour, the ambitious brother of the late Queen Jane Seymour, also the brother of the protector, Edward Seymour. Their swift marriage just months after the king's death was a topic of hushed whispers in the corridors of power. And in fact, while Princess Elizabeth was more okay with it, Princess Mary, future Queen Mary, was 100% not okay with it. She was a big no to Catherine and Thomas getting married, and there's letters where she talks about how upset she is about it. So Thomas was a man who was constantly in the shadow of greater ambitions. His title as the Lord Admiral of England and his proximity as the uncle to the young King Edward VI meant that he was always close to the epicenter of power. His marriage to Catherine further cemented his influential position but it also invited scrutiny. I'm not going to talk about all of the stuff between him and Elizabeth, Princess Elizabeth, when she was staying there. We're just going to stay on Catherine's story right now. So in 1548, Catherine announced her pregnancy. For the Dowager Queen, this represented a long-awaited joy. She was on her fourth marriage now, the one where she was actually in love for the first time. And she could finally be a mother, something she hadn't experienced in her previous marriages. Tragedy, however, was on the horizon. Not long after giving birth to her daughter, Mary, Catherine succumbed to purple fever, childbed fever, um, postnatal complications at Sudley Castle. The dream of a peaceful family with her newborn daughter and husband was cruelly snatched away. With Catherine's passing, Thomas's ambitions would further spiral, leading him down a very perilous path. And, of course, young Mary was caught in the storm. Just days after Mary's birth, when Catherine Parr passed away, Thomas decided to leave Mary under the care of his own brother, Edward Seymour, Duke of Somerset, also the protector. But then things got Very, very messy when Thomas was executed for treason when Mary was just a few months old. So then Mary was entrusted to the care of Catherine Willoughby, Duchess of Suffolk, a dear friend of Catherine's. We would think that the Seymours, her family, might want to take her in, but it doesn't seem that way. Mary was relocated to the Duchess of Suffolk's main home in Grimsthorpe in Lincolnshire. 
even though she was just a young child at this point, her upkeep seems to have been a point of contention. The Duchess wrote letters about her expenses and sought help from Cecil, who was then associated with Somerset, to help pay the bills. Fortunately, by autumn 1549, when she would have been about a year old, some funds were approved for Mary. And by January of 1550, there was actually a legal move to ensure that Mary got her inheritance from Thomas Seymour's properties. However, the reality was somber. There wasn't much left for Mary. And by September of 1550, the financial assistance had stopped. And there's an understanding that Mary might have passed away then around her second birthday. So there's an intriguing story suggesting that Mary might have lived and had been cared for by the Aglianbees who had ties with the Pars and then later married a man close to Anne of Denmark, the queen of James VI of Scotland, the first of England. But there's no solid evidence of this. There's no solid proof. And it was all too common, of course, for children at that age to die young. So I'm leaning towards the heartbreaking possibility that Mary left this world as a toddler. There's also a wonderful historical kind of time slip novel by Nicola Cornick that explores the idea that Mary might have lived. It's called The Phantom Tree, if you want to check it out. And I would love to believe that. But sadly, I just don't. It seems like Mary probably died when she was only about two years old. So it's a very sad ending. When you think about where Catherine Parr was in January of 1547 or February of 1547, when she was a widow from Henry VIII, the Dowager Queen, she could finally marry for love. She marries Thomas. Then there's, you know, whatever episodes happen with Princess Elizabeth, she sends Princess Elizabeth away. She's now with her love and she's going to give birth. She has this daughter and, you know, for a day, it must have been very, very happy. And then she died and then Thomas fell apart and then Mary died. So it all kind of just ended for this this little trio. So it's it's sad, but I think it's also important to remember these stories that were all too common of these children dying very young. And yes, it's heartbreaking. But I think it's important to remember that there was that part of Catherine Parr. She was a mother, and we don't often remember that part about her, and we don't often think about what happened to little Mary Seymour, but little Mary Seymour deserves to be remembered and deserves to be known. Today, we are doing another Tudor Portraits and Propaganda video, and we're going to explore one of the most captivating portraits from the Elizabethan era, painted in 1592 the Ditchley portrait of Queen Elizabeth I. This masterpiece was created by Marcus Gerhardt's The Younger. It isn't just a stunning visual representation, it's a tale woven in oil on canvas, filled with symbols and hidden messages, like all of the Tudor portraits. Gerhardt's was renowned for his cutting-edge approach, captured the essence of the period and the spirit of the Queen in this portrait. His innovative techniques and attention to detail made him the go-to artist of the 1590s, and the Ditchley portrait stands as a testament to his artistic prowess. The man behind the commission of this portrait was Sir Henry Lee, a figure deeply intertwined in the fabric of Elizabethan court life. He served as the Queen's champion from 1559 until his retirement in 1590. 
He was more than a courtier. He was a symbol of chivalry and loyalty to the crown. His retirement brought significant change. He retreated to Ditchley and lived with his mistress, Anne Vavasor. This marked a downturn in his relationship with the queen, a bond once defined by mutual respect and admiration. In September 1592, Lee sought to mend the strained relationship with an elaborate entertainment event for the queen, likely held at the Ditchley estate. This grand gesture was more than just festivity. It was a symbolic olive branch, an act seeking forgiveness and reconciliation. The Ditchley portrait was likely commissioned to commemorate the event, serving as a lasting reminder of Lee's loyalty and the Queen's graciousness in forgiving her once-favored courtier. In this portrait, Elizabeth I stands majestically, her feet upon Oxfordshire, Lee's home county, a visual homage to his estate and their renewed connection. The symbolism is profound, indicating not just geographical location, but also the Queen's forgiveness, standing above the storms of political and personal upheaval, shining like the sun after a tempest. In this portrait, Gerhardt's captured more than the Queen. He captured a moment of political and personal significance, creating a work that transcends time, telling a story of power, forgiveness, and artistry that continues to captivate us centuries later. So let's look at the symbolism. First, we have Elizabeth on the globe. The most striking feature is Elizabeth standing confidently on a globe. Her feet rest specifically over Oxfordshire, a deliberate choice by the artist. This is not just geographical reference. It's a political statement. Of course, it was Sir Henry Lee's estate. And it symbolizes the queen's dominion over her realm and her magnanimity in forgiving Lee. Her stance is dominating yet graceful reflecting her role as both sovereign and a merciful leader, a balance that defined her reign. There's also the stormy sky and the sunshine. So the stormy sky parts to reveal sunshine, a masterful use of weather as metaphor. This imagery transcends backdrop. It's a narrative device. The turbulent clouds represent the tumultuous times and personal challenges that both the Queen and Lee faced. The clearing skies and emerging sunlight symbolize renewal, forgiveness, and the restoration of favor. Gerhardt uses this natural phenomenon to suggest that just as the sun dispels the storms, the queen's grace overcomes conflict and discord. There's also a lot of text there. There's Latin inscriptions and a fragmented sonnet adding layers of meaning. The inscriptions translated as she gives and does not expect. She can, but does not take revenge. And in giving back, she increases. They speak volumes about Elizabeth's philosophy of rule. They emphasize her grace, her capacity for forgiveness, and the power inherent in her clemency. The sonnet is believed to be composed by Lee. It draws parallels between Elizabeth and the sun, a common symbol for monarchs, and it portrays her as a source of light and life, benevolent yet powerful. This juxtaposition of power and benevolence is a recurrent theme in Elizabethan propaganda, reinforcing her image as a ruler who was as much of a nurturer as she was a ruler. In this portrait, her attire is a visual feast replete with symbolic undertones. The extensive use of pearls and white silk is impossible to miss. Pearls were often associated with the Virgin Mary in the 16th century, 
We've talked about that in other portraits, too, where she has lots of pearls reflecting her carefully cultivated image as the Virgin Queen. This portrayal was more than a personal preference. It was a political strategy, positioning her as a paragon of chastity and divine right. The white silk of her gown, luxurious and pristine, further emphasizes this message of purity and unblemished rule. Each element in her clothing, from the grandiose farthingale to the intricate lace, was carefully chosen as a symbol of her status, authority, and the untouchable nature of her reign. Marcus Gerhardt's the Younger was a visionary in his approach to portrait painting, particularly in his depiction of clothing. His technique in the Ditchley portrait reveals an acute attention to detail and a deep understanding of fabric and form. His ability to render the textures and sheen of the queen's attire speaks to his mastery over his medium. His focus on the clothing, often spending more time on it than on the queen's face, offers a fascinating insight into Elizabethan fashion and the importance placed on royal attire as a symbol of status and power. Beyond its aesthetic brilliance, the Ditchley portrait was a tool of propaganda. Through this portrait, Elizabeth I broadcast messages about her reign, her divinity, her unassailable position as a female ruler in a male-dominated world. The grandeur and opulence of her attire, the pearls symbolizing purity, and the overall majesty of her depiction were designed to awe and remind viewers of her absolute authority. Marcus Gerhardt's The Younger was born in Bruges around 1562, moved to England with his family as a child, escaping religious persecution. His father was also a notable artist and introduced young Marcus to the vibrant world of Elizabethan painting. In England, he quickly established himself as a premier portraitist, known for his innovation and skill. His work was characterized by a unique blend of realism and symbolism, capturing not just the physical likeness of his subjects, but also their status, character, and the political undercurrents of the time. The Ditchley portrait is a prime example of this, where Gearhart's talent for realism is evident in the intricate depiction of fabric and jewels, and his skill in symbolism is displayed in the numerous allegorical elements. The Ditchley portrait's fame led to the creation of several variants, each offering a slightly different perspective on Elizabeth I. One notable example is the Manteo portrait. While similar in composition and symbolism, the Manteo portrait presents a somewhat softened image of the queen perhaps indicating a different aspect of her persona or a shift in the public's perception over time. They are interpretations, each reflecting the evolving artistic trends of the era and the differing perspectives on the Queen's image. They demonstrate the enduring impact of the Ditchley portrait, not just as a singular work of art, but as a template for exploring royal imagery and propaganda. The difference in facial features, Attire, even the portrayal of symbolic elements like the globe and the skies, offer insights into how Elizabeth's image was continually reshaped and idealized to suit the political and cultural narratives of the time. Thanks so much for listening to this week's YouTube highlights. Remember, you can go over and subscribe. History and Coffee, Heather Tesco, you will find me there. And uh, we'll be back again next week with more highlights from what went out on YouTube throughout the week. Thanks so much. Have a great week. Blow, northern wind, a baby sweating. Blow, northern wind.